Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the first sponsor of On the Other Side, Rabbit Hole. Rabbit Hole is allowing users to earn crypto while they explore the weird world of Web3, guiding new users down the crypto rabbit hole in a curated way to make sure that people coming into the space are not only using positive sum protocols, but are also starting to build their on-chain resume as they do it. So the longer-term vision for Rabbit Hole is building essentially the open credentialing system for Web3. To build that credentialing system, it's important that they're decentralized. And so the Pathfinder program is paving the way for decentralizing Rabbit Hole and creating an open system built by the community, not by a single team. If you're interested in learning more about Rabbit Hole, check out Rabbit Hole at rabbithole.gg. You can also check them out on Twitter, rabbithole underscore gg. And if you're interested in learning more about the Pathfinder program, which is the first step to the Rabbit Hole DAO, you can check it out at rabbithole.gg slash pathfinder. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Patrick Rivera from Mirror. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Anytime. It's a pleasure to be here. I am super excited to chat about all the things that have been on your mind in terms of Web3 and communities and all of that. Before we dive into it, do you want to give a little bit of background on you, how you felt on the crypto rabbit hole, and then maybe a little bit on what you're working on and thinking about? Definitely. So... After graduating school, I ended up working at Instacart on the growth team as an engineer, was there for about a year. And at some time I was basically just bored with different projects. It seemed like most of them were taking about a month to go from idea to being shipped. And a lot of them looked very similar. And so I ended up getting in touch with Dharma, which is a DeFi crypto wallet and fiat on ramp. And that was really the first time that I had gone deep on crypto or like really started researching it up until then I'd heard different podcasts and a lot of really smart people were dedicating their careers to crypto. People like Chris Dixon, Haseeb Qureshi from Dragonfly. And of course I'd heard Vitalik talk and just seemed like these were some of the smartest, most technical, non-technical people just thinking about things from, and not just like a technological perspective, but also in human organization with governance, with law, with tokenomics, et cetera. And so even at that point, that was towards the end of 2019. At that point, yeah, I wasn't sure whether crypto was going to be a thing in a year, two years, five years, 10 years, but the team really impressed me, the people I interviewed with. And I was like, worst case, I just work here, learn from really smart people and then go do something else. And so I joined Darmon and was an engineer doing full stack feature work. And so I ended up doing some stuff with integrating with Uniswap so that anytime a new pool was created on Uniswap, we made it instantly indexable in our app. So I learned a lot about blockchain and implementation and how it actually works and transactions getting processed, et cetera. And that was just really mind-blowing coming from a Web2 startup like Instacart where it's like, okay, a lot of the patterns have already been formalized around standing up an API and scaling servers. But here, it seemed like this completely new world and like in, when you're working as an engineer, if you run into a problem, you usually go on Stack Overflow and there's an answer on Google. But then for most of like the crypto problems, they were just so specific or so new that you had to just like figure stuff out, look at the source code, tinker a bit. And so that was really fascinating. And yeah, that ended up being right in the middle of DeFi summer where there was a lot of food tokens. And at that point, I was also in the middle of the pandemic. And I was like, 
yes, it's very interesting, very smart team, very technical and intellectually stimulating, but I wanted to work more in like a consumer facing app or creator economy type of app because yeah, I just felt that throughout the day, what I was reading, where I was learning, where I was hanging out, all of it was being done like on social platforms. I was learning directly from creators and it just felt like, yeah, there was still a lot to be built in that space. And so ended up leaving Dharma, pursuing different startup ideas, got reconnected with my manager from Dharma, who ended up being the CTO at Mirror and saw that that was an intersection of a couple ideas I had and was considering starting something, but realized Mirror, there were three people at the time, but that was pretty much as good a core founding team that I could find. And so I decided to join and yeah, I haven't looked back since. I've been there for about seven or eight months now. And yeah, it's been a great experience and working at the intersection of crypto creators and communities. Big fan of Mirror. Also feels like Mirror is actually the starting point for so many different Web3 communities, which has been really amazing to see evolve over the past few months. Um, I know you've been doing a lot of thinking on Web3 communities, and I want to dive into all of that. You recently did a talk on the life cycle of a Web3 community. Do you want to give like a broad overview of what that life cycle looks like? Yeah, definitely. To your point around like Mirror being the starting place. That's how we're viewing it now. Whereas yeah, when Mirror was started, it was directed towards writers and publishing specifically. But now we're starting to view that most of the projects that are doing well on Mirror through our crowdfunding feature, they seem to be look more like these Web3 native communities as opposed to specifically focused on writing or creating a newsletter that's just backed by crypto or it has crypto infrastructure. And so, yeah, I've been seeing some patterns there and way we see it is that crowdfunding or more generally speaking, like token distribution is really just like one step in the process of creating a Web3 native community. And so even just take a step back. So the way that one of the definitions that I really like for Web3 communities is it's basically like a group chat with a shared bank account and a cap table. And so with crypto basically means that yeah, you have this transparent structure run by smart contracts. You have a group chat where people are interacting. Then you also have this like on-chain contract that's holding the funds. You can see transparently the capital inflows and outflows, and there still needs to be a bunch of tooling built, but at least that's like the high-level vision and kind of structure of these types of organizations. And in terms of starting one, there's tons of different patterns and models, but generally speaking, you first start off with the group chat, and then maybe you have something as lightweight as a multi-sig, so basically just like a wallet where you have multiple people in to sign in order to authorize transactions. And then from there, it'll usually start by pooling together funds and investing in different crypto assets like NFTs or fungible tokens. And then as these group chats get a bit more ambitious or want to bring more people on, maybe they'll upgrade from a Telegram group to a Discord server just so they can manage more people in different channels. And then they'll also include the multi-sig. They'll use something like Gnosis Safe. And then they'll also end up incorporating other elements for structure like governance proposals through something like Snapshot or issuing a token through a crowdfund like on mirrored or doing some sort of like fractionalized NFT ownership through something like party bid and just giving a way for people to have like this membership token or this asset that can align incentives. And then a few other elements as well. If you really want to evolve your, your down to something that is, yeah, it can actually run autonomously and run like as an organization, you have things like working groups, which will be like very focused teams that are empowered to solve specific problems around things like, treasury management or governance or onboarding or tokenomics or product development. And so that's kind of the way that I've been seeing it. And so, yeah, there's definitely lots of different models, very hard to overgeneralize, but I think those are some of the common patterns. 
I want to dive into something that you mentioned, which is like, if you want your DAO to be autonomous, you have things like working groups. I like the way that you frame that because I feel like what autonomy means in DAOs is sort of changing. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people talk about yeah, and get hung up on the autonomy piece. I think it is very important though. It's like not necessarily autonomous in the sense that it's like code that you just interact with and just works by itself. And yeah, the, the reality is that these DAOs really have humans at the center and humans are the ones that are powering it. And yeah, I think it's at the end of the day, a lot of these DAOs still have a bunch of structures, people on Twitter dunking all the time on DAOs and like, oh yeah, yeah, as we've seen in the last 20 years, it's really great to have 500 people deciding about product decisions or just saying stuff about how DAOs won't scale because they're decentralized. But I think the reality is for people that are contributing in these DAOs and working with them is that, yeah, there are people that have ownership. There are very small, focused, dedicated teams that are empowered to take ownership over specific work streams or projects. And from there, it's, yeah, it's not necessarily autonomous in the code sense where it just runs automatically and is deterministic, but autonomous in the sense that, okay, you have this fairly formalized structure process or a clear way of getting things done and formalizing ownership in terms of who's the one who decides decisions, et cetera. And maybe you have community input, but then a specific team is implementing it with oversight from the community. So there's different models there. But that's, that's kind of the thing about it. There's still humans at the center. And so it's not like fully autonomous, but yeah, you, you still want to build some sort of structure and, and give people this sort of leeway and ownership over specific projects. Yeah, I think that's very much how I think about it as well. I'm curious how you think about the role of like a core team and sort of full-time contributors versus part-time contributors that are a little bit more flexible. It feels like a lot of DAOs have sort of like a hybrid between the two, some much more or less on like either side. Do you think that every DAO needs a core team? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say probably not every DAO. I think, yeah, there's a lot of yeah, nuances and specific use cases. And they did, a lot of it depends on the purpose of the DAO. Some of them are trying to be like the next you know, like massive influential organizations on the internet. And then there's others that are more just yeah, for fun, friends hanging out, having shared ownership over assets, shared decision-making, just like a new type of social network where you don't necessarily need someone driving decisions day to day and, and taking that much ownership, it's more so like this like loose structure. And so yeah, it depends on the purpose, but I, I do see a, a case for both. And especially for the ones that are trying to be more serious and want to, yeah, they're planning to have significant on-chain cash flow and have people working full-time on it and being able to like build products or protocols and, yeah, and like build like lasting organizations. The ones that I've seen, yeah, they tend to just emergently, maybe at first, it'll start off as a group of friends no sort of formalized structure, but over time, the ones realize, okay, hey, there's someone that just really enjoys thinking about tokenomics. So there's somebody that really enjoys product development. And then just naturally, it'll emerge over time. It's not like a strict hierarchy, like, okay, here's a two-year contract to work on this project, or here's like a, yeah, a contract in perpetuity. It's more so like, what I really like is the seasons model, where you can basically say, hey, maybe you don't want to commit full-time like, indefinitely, but you scope this experiment or you scope this project to a specific like period of time seasons could be anywhere from like one month to three months, or maybe it's just project specific. And you say, you're going to be full-time on this project for this limited amount of time. And then from there you get to decide you know, your ongoing involvement and maintenance, et cetera. And so I think that, yeah, the ones that I've seen, they do tend to have 
yeah, more like fleshed out like ownership structures and accountability. But then also I could see for the one, there's also ones that are more social in nature and, and don't necessarily need people with formalized structure. Yeah, it's definitely feels like it's dependent upon like the purpose of what the DAO is trying to do. That feels like a really important aspect. When you think about contributor onboarding, I'm curious how you think about filtering because what I've seen in different DAOs are sort of a lot of different methods where some DAOs are relatively closed. It's pretty hard to become a contributor. And then once you do become a contributor, you can do a bunch of different things versus being a DAO who maybe is a lot more open. Like becoming a contributor is really easy. It's just that you have to like level up in the tasks that you're doing. Um, I feel like with Mirror, it's interesting because a lot of times there are these crowd funds where, you know, part of taking part in a crowd fund is typically access to a token gated discord. And so you're sort of onboarding people early on versus doing this like, hey, you have to basically like do a bunch of work and and it's really hard to get into a DAO. So I'm curious how you think about filtering contributors across the board for different DAOs and what the different factors there are. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, with contributor onboarding, it's yeah, on one end, like the crypto web three thesis is yeah, these open permissionless systems where anyone can join cross-border, anyone in the world have an internet connection, but then you also want to balance that with the tension of, okay, you want this curated community, you want to minimize trolls and you want to have a unified vision, mission, values, et cetera. And so I do think there's like a hierarchy of onboarding where, yeah, you it's great to have like this there's like different tiers where say, okay, this is like the open section of the discord for people to learn, for people to understand what's going on in the community. They take a more passive role, but there's still maybe you have maybe weekly like voice calls on discord so people can be engaged and learn and build reputation within the community. And maybe the next level of engagement is, okay, you're either awarded this token or you're able to earn it over time just through like proof of work in a way in order to kind of minimize like potential spam. If it was just easy for people to join and kind of, yeah, kind of deviate the community from its mission or become a bad actor. I think that one way to limit that or to keep the group a bit more focused is yeah, having this sort of like proof of work mechanism for potential contributors to spend a few weeks and get to know people, get involved in working groups, et cetera. And so, yeah, so that's like one other layer to it. And then you could also think about it where then you have like core contributors and yeah, I've seen like different frameworks for it. And there's, there's a lot of like elegant thinking around it, especially Rafa. He's written a lot about like, the different like concentric circles of DAOs and can definitely link to one of his pieces in the show notes. But yeah, I like to think about it where ideally there is a way for people that are either don't have financial means or don't have like the relationships to be able to get into the, into the DAO from day one, but also build reputation and build that proof of work over time in order to yeah, allow people to kind of show what they have and be able to contribute in certain ways. And even if it's not necessarily as a core contributor and kind of build that reputation over time. Yeah, it feels like especially where you have this difference in Web3 communities between Web2, which is like ownership. You talk a little bit about this in your life cycle of a Web3 community, but it feels like having a place for everyone is super important, especially if everyone is going to be an owner. Like you don't want to be an owner of something and then be useless. It feels really good to help and to contribute, um, but to also feel like you're getting something from that community, which I think kind of dovetails nicely into this major point that you make in this life cycle of Web3 communities, which is this idea that essentially in Web3, the community is the platform. Do you want to dive into that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So this is 
one of the really interesting shifts that we're seeing with say a web two product platform, et cetera, versus web three. And I saw that Andrew Hong, data scientist at Mirrored, he's been thinking a lot about communities and he's talking about community engineering and thinking about, okay, how do you, you know, what is different in web three? How do you build products that kind of inform the community and allow them to yeah, really engage the product? And what are the main differences between web two, web three? And one of the insights that he had was community is the platform. And that's kind of the alternative to in web two, where the platform is this corporation. And from there, you basically build this app and then people are basically, they're organized around this app and you use these features. And from there, and you have these siloed different corporations and different products. And so for example, if you're building your, if you're a creator and you're building an audience or a community across different platforms, say Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, Shopify, et cetera, there's no like unifying like standard that allows you to engage with your community. There's email, which is an open protocol, similar to these crypto protocols, but yeah, it's still, there's no like unifying way to engage your community. Whereas if you look at the alternative in Web3, you have something like FWB, where you have this token, just a standard ERC20 token, which is the FWB token. It's simply an address that lives on the Ethereum network. And people that hold this token, they they own it through their private key in their wallet. And you can basically signal that you're part of this community. And not only that, I think the most interesting part of it is that now you have this open standard, this token that you own as a community member, and all the apps are basically organized around the community. And so you can basically import your community into any of these apps, whether it's something like Mirror, whether it's OpenSea, whether it's Zora, or other apps that are built around things like gaming use cases, social networks, et cetera. You basically have this core community and then you import the community into any of these apps as opposed to in Web2 where you have to add like CSV export and import features and really complex and there's no like clear open standard for taking your data and exporting it to different places. And so I think that the core fundamental shift here is that you basically hold this asset, whether an NFT or an ERC-20, and that is this open standard that's supported by any protocol or product that supports the, this open standard. And so you basically get to take your community to these different apps and import it without necessarily having to do any of this really complex like import-export type logic. So I have a, a question based on that. If you think about companies as the platform in, in a lot of Web2, it feels like companies optimize for revenue. And a lot of times in Web2, that's been uh, time spent on a platform. And so what they're optimizing for ultimately is like time spent because they're optimizing for revenue. If you build anything on top of that, you're building something that's optimizing for that. If we're building applications on top of communities instead of companies, I'm curious what you think applications optimize for in that world. Yes, that's a super interesting question. And yeah, definitely in Web2, the way the incentive model works, it's it's usually, all right, you, at least in social networks, you have this app, you want, you want it to be free so it can reach as many people as possible. And then in order to monetize, you serve ads. And that's basically the inventory, that's the product. And in order to sell more inventory, it's basically keeping people engaged and seeing more ads. And so naturally the incentive mechanism is we want people to be as active on these products, using them as much as possible, not necessarily for their benefit in many ways to their detriment. And so, yeah, it creates this really broken incentive structure. And so 
Yeah, you compare that to Web3 where, okay, now you have these communities. I think the core difference here is that, yeah, the switching costs are much lower in the sense that, okay, you have this FWB token or any general ERC20 or NFT, and you can export it as simply as just connecting your wallet into another app that supports it. And so the switching costs are much, much lower as opposed to, okay, I built up this massive YouTube audience, this massive Instagram audience, and now I have to figure out a way to export them, et cetera. And so, yeah, in terms of yeah, thinking through like what are different metrics or how do you think about it? I think right now it's still very early in terms of yeah, thinking through what is like the best metric for this and just the apps are, yeah, I think that thinking about it as an economy though, is pretty interesting. I really like what Axie Infinity has been doing and kind of pioneering a lot of this, this thinking around viewing these communities as these economies. They have this token, this currency, there's government mechanisms, there are let's say different cities, which are maybe sub DAOs or DAOs within the community or different projects or protocols you're integrating with and just thinking about it. And with economies, like one of the key metrics is GDP. And so thinking about it as, okay, how do we, how do we make it so that whenever you, and thinking about it, like immigrating to a new country. And so the reason why people want to immigrate to the United States is because you have more opportunity. And what does that mean? There's probably more jobs, there's probably higher wages, there's probably a better standard of living with public infrastructure, healthcare, et cetera, than certain other places, maybe developing countries that people are living in. And so thinking about crypto protocols and crypto networks in that context, it's okay, why do we want, why do we want people to, to immigrate to our crypto protocol or our economy, or how do we build relationships with other crypto economies and thinking about it through that lens of, okay, we wanna increase the GDP of this economy, we wanna provide benefits and services, we wanna give more than we're taking, we want to provide ample opportunity, standard of living, et cetera. And yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to think about it in that light. And I'm sure there's going to be like similar metrics to economies and monetary policy and macro, microeconomics, et cetera. But I think that's kind of the lens that I've been looking at it through. Yeah, that's a really interesting lens. My brain sort of right away goes to, and maybe this is like a bad reflection of the way that my brain works. But when I think about crypto protocols as economies and nations, I'm like, what is crypto colonialism and how do we avoid that? Maybe that doesn't exist, but Definitely. I'm curious if you think it does. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think with crypto, we tend to be techno optimists naturally because it's still kind of in this fringe phase for the most part. And people that are attracted to crypto, they seem to yeah, be more optimistic than others. And so I think it is useful to be like, and to think about what are the downsides? What are things we can learn? What are the anti-patterns, things we want to avoid? And you know, I think in this particular example, there's a lot around, I think the play to earn movement is super interesting in terms of a new way of working, new incentive structures. But one thing that my friends, that they usually ask immediately once we start talking about it is, oh, isn't that like indentured servitude where, for example, with Axie Infinity, you you have this in-game asset, which is a productive, it's an NFT, just a token that lives on the blockchain, but you can use it to battle other players in the game and earn this in-game currency, which can be converted into a local fiat to pay bills, et cetera. And so naturally the prices for these in-game assets, they increase as demand for the game increased. And so the prices increased and ended up being like a few thousand dollars worth of ETH just to get started and start playing the game. And so there emerged this, financial infrastructure around lending and borrowing. And so we had certain providers buy up in-game assets and then loan them out to people at an interest rate to allow people to get started. And so kind of the 
I would say that the negative consequence of that potentially is, okay, now you have these people that are relying on these assets for a living in order to make a living wage, et cetera, pay their bills. And so, yeah, if, if there's too much power controlled by these, you know, these intermediaries or these yeah, DeFi players and lending programs, lending DAOs, et cetera, then yeah, it could be easy for them to take advantage. And I think that at least in crypto, ideally in theory, with the lower switching costs, other people can enter the market. They can provide a similar service off these open standards. But I do think in practice, there are potentially going to be aggregators, people that aggregate demand and they create positive feedback loops around having the most capital, being able to loan out at the lowest rates and giving them the power to kind of have better interest rates, et cetera. And yeah, and kind of have more of a one-way relationship. And so that's definitely something to think about. I would say that ideally with these open systems, there are open standards, there are ways to keep people in check and to make things more transparent. But I definitely do think that's certainly a possibility to be aware of. Yeah, I think that's really important to think about. And I still love the nation state analogy because I think, or economies, you know, nations, whatever it might be, analogy, because I think it's useful in considering some of those things. But it's also interesting because it feels like having this really low cost of switching does allow people to sort of exist in the communities that they actually align with in terms of like vision and mission and things like that. I'm curious how you think about building some of those communities where they're building with some of these things in mind, whether it be making those values really clear so that people can sort of exit to the communities that they're aligned with, or even thinking about like some of the standards that you're talking about, where ideally we avoid some of these problems. I'm curious in general, just how you think about building those like strong foundations of a community. Yeah. Yeah. So with the communities that I really admired, ones like Friends with Benefits, there's one called Fingerprints DAO, which is an NFT collector DAO, Pleaser DAO. There seems to be a really core team that, yeah, they lead by example. They embody the culture through the way that they act, through what they prioritize, through the way that they empower people within the community. And so I think that, yeah, in crypto, a lot of people want to think about, like, what is this new, like, crazy whiz-bang DeFi protocol complex tokenomics thing, but I think the reality is, especially for DAOs and Web3 communities, humans are at the core, they're at the center, they're the ones that are being greeted in the introductions channel, they're the ones that are in the GM channel every morning or whatever time of day it is, and yeah, they're the ones that people are actually interacting with, and yeah, at the end of the day, humans are emotional beings, and so my favorite communities are the ones where I know that it's a place where I can go, it's a social hangout spot where there's going to be people interacting, there's people that are you know, willing to answer questions, spend time with you, give you feedback, support you, et cetera. And yeah, I think it's a lot of this stuff where it's like, it seems like the blocking and tackling unglamorous stuff, but I think it's what really separates people. And yeah, as most people in, in crypto know, there's a Cooper Turley, Koopa Troopa on Twitter and just every community he's a part of. He's in a ton of communities and the ones that he's like a core contributor in, he makes sure that, yeah, he's every single day or most days or multiple times a week, interacting, engaging, giving people props, shout outs, small things. Like if they introduce themselves, being able to form a connection with somebody else and telling them, oh, check out this channel, et cetera. Just like small things like that, I think are really the things that allow you to not just have like a nice marketing page about your mission and values, but to really allow people to emotionally feel invested and supported and part of this community. 
Yeah, I think that the the human touch is certainly really important. It feels like that's one of the main reasons that people join DAOs is they want to feel connected with other people. In terms of people who are involved in a bunch of DAOs, so Cooper's a good example of this. I should have asked him about this on the podcast when he came on, but I did not. Um, but I'm curious to hear your take on this. So I feel like there are like two camps of DAO contributors. There are people who are core contributors to maybe like one DAO and go really deep versus people who are involved in a bunch of different DAOs. Um, that maybe go deep on the subject matter, but not on the DAO itself. I know you're involved in a few DAOs, but you also are like thinking probably most of your time is spent thinking about Mirror. So I'm curious how you think about the difference between those types of contributors. Can you be a full-time DAO contributor in both capacities? I don't know. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, a lot of people over the past year, even like pre-pandemic, like future of work was like, the really hot thing that people in tech and Silicon Valley and tech Twitter were talking about. And I think that DAOs are going to be the future of work. A lot of those people ended up getting into web three and spending most of their time in it. And you know, just thinking through like historically it's okay. There's like two broad models. There's okay. You work for this corporation either as an employee or as a founder, but you, you, know, you have this indefinite time period where you're working with them. And then the other model is okay. You're a freelancer and you're, or you're solo entrepreneur and you're working project to project or you have your own project that you're working on on your own time. And yeah, this new model of work, we're still figuring things out and yeah, understanding it, but I definitely view that as the next like, emergent way of most people working online and yeah, thinking about these things. For me personally, yeah, I, I'm definitely committed vast majority of my time to Mirren. That's just where, yeah, I feel like I have the opportunity to make the most impact right now at this point in time and yeah, I, I'm spending vast majority of my time there, but I also find it really valuable to be able to learn from other DAOs. So also involved with the Bright Moments DAO, Fingerprint, Seed Club, Friends with Benefits, and yeah, fairly passive, more so just a lurker in the Discord. But yeah, I'm fairly intentional on when I do spend time with these DAOs and what I'm doing and how I'm learning from them. Like, for example, I try to stay up to date on, there's like common patterns around things like onboarding around process for governance proposals around community engagement through things like voice chats or fireside chats or newsletters and different channel structures and things of that nature and also tokenomics how they're thinking about that and token swaps and as well as thinking through okay how do we create like different working groups and how is communication yeah transmitted between the different working groups and then the other contributors in the DAO and so there's a bunch of patterns and I think that that only helps my work at Mirrored, understanding the different patterns in the community. And yeah, hopefully there's certain ways that I can help with different projects at times as I'm yeah, researching and learning more about them and hanging out with the voice calls or in different channels where I think I can be helpful in answering questions or hopping on calls with people. And so, yeah, it's, it's the way I, I think about it, but I definitely see people that, yeah, they are just so committed to one project and they're doubling down on that, spending all their time there. And I definitely think that at least for me personally, I yeah learn more and build yeah, more, yeah, a more robust skill set by compounding the work with one specific project, but then also by giving sometimes, say, 10% of time to be able to explore and understand patterns that are emerging with some of the other like top communities. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think I've done I've done the same in terms of thinking like, okay, I see that Index and Forefront are both doing this and this is working well. One of them is doing this and it's not working well. What is like the common denominator that that is successful, which I think has been really interesting. I'm curious what the the top patterns 
have been that you've seen emerge out of that like pattern seeking sort of um, type of thing that you're doing within DAOs? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, thinking about it in terms of like, the life cycle of a DAO or Web3 community, I think it all starts with onboarding. And yeah, to me, onboarding, it can mean a lot of things. It can be, okay, how do you distribute the token? How do people get selected? How do they get funneled into a different working group? But I also think, yeah, it's also things around how is the Discord structured? How active is the introduction channel? Are there core team members in the introduction channel making connections and recommending people specific working groups or channels that they can hang out in? I think that's a big one that I'm really impressed with. And then there's also, I really like with Index Co-op, how they're able to create this whole onboarding program around communicating their values, their mission, showing them like the taxonomy of the org structure, how things work, what are the different working groups you can get involved with, having specific action items and structure around, okay, how do you get involved? I think that's probably the best onboarding I've seen. And yeah, I, I haven't gone through it yet, but I've seen people talk about it, read articles about it and should go through it myself, but it seems like it's anchored and I'm sure it's something that you can chat about extensively. And so that's definitely a thing around onboarding and then also around governance. And so the governance is like this big thing where, okay, you have these tokens and they're mostly around governance rights and deciding things. And I think governance is really like a web three crypto native social feature, similar and akin to likes or retweets or comments. It's basically a way for people to you know, signal how they feel about a certain piece of content or a certain idea. And I think with governance, it's, kind of boring now in the sense that you have this forum, you post, it's just this blob of text and you see these addresses, maybe an ENS name around people who voted. And I think that, yeah, the DAOs that, or communities that I'm really impressed by are ones that, yeah, they view it as this like active community process where it's maybe you have a specific Discord channel where people are talking, maybe you, you schedule time on the calendar for people to discuss the proposal and chat about it and to express how they feel about it. And they have multiple iterations. And so really viewing governance as this new type of like web three crypto native social feature, I think is really interesting. And then, yeah, I think probably the last thing is around just structured and yeah, people definitely think that DAOs are just like this complete like mess of an organization where there's a free for all people just do whatever they want. But I think the best ones, they have a very clear path for getting involved, clear structure around what does it mean to be a contributor or just a member and, what the distinctions are and how to evolve and and accelerate your path and also with specific working groups for different projects where people have a clear accountability for tasks and roles and it's scoped out and there's people that are yeah just held accountable for their decisions and so yeah i think those are some of the patterns around yeah to reiterate one is with onboarding another one is around governance making that feel more social and then third is around having structure with the DAO or community. I love the idea that governance is a crypto native social structure. I think that's super interesting and a really interesting way to frame it when you think about voter apathy and other things, because it's like, it's social. So get people to engage in ways that you get them to engage socially, not by like trying to get them to vote in like standard democracy, which I think is probably a lot more boring. Exactly. Yeah. It's like people love play. I mean, people have been talking about it where yeah, social apps are really just like a video game. Like Packy McCormick wrote a really good piece on you know, the great online game and just viewing it through that lens where yeah, people like, like your follower count, that's a game. Likes and retweets and subscribers, that's a game. And yeah, not taking it too seriously, but 
thinking about it in the in the way that yeah, people want to yeah, try and increase their follower count or get more likes and even if it's subconscious and and think about it in a more yeah, conscious way where it's okay we have this governance proposal how do we make it clear that how do we have a profile page that shows all your votes across different communities or proposals or how do you get specific badges to show that yeah, you were active in five straight proposals or and so like what are the game mechanics that yeah, ideally aren't about addiction but more so around contribution and adding value to the community yeah, that's really cool. And I also know that there are a lot of governance proposals now that I've seen on Snapshot that are using um, PoApps too, which has been really cool to see because I think it is a lot more of that like gamifying but in a positive way, not addictive way to your point. We want to make Web3 abundant, not scarce and addictive, ideally. <laughs> yeah, 100%. We'll get there. Um, before we wrap up, do I do a segment at the end of the show, which is – what is your favorite thing in your wallet? So it can be an ERC-20, an NFT, anything, but what is your favorite thing in your wallet? Yeah, so definitely will be my slinky squiggle because, yeah, just I think it encapsulate, encapsulates a lot of what Web3 and crypto is about around, yeah, like on the surface, it's this thing that just looks really dumb, looks like a scam, looks speculative, when you peel back the layers, it, there's actually a lot more meaning behind it. And so specifically with Squiggles, that was the first project released on Artblocks, which is this generative art NFT minting platform. And it was created by the founder of Artblocks, Snowfrode, who's an OG in crypto and is known for being a really active member of the CryptoPunks community. And he spent two years on this algorithm that was able to generate these Squiggles and there's a wide range of Squiggles. And yeah, for me, there's like, multiple reasons why it's interesting. And first is at first I thought it was very, very dumb. I think it was like around March, someone sent me a link to Squiggle DAO and they were like, okay, buy this. If you buy Squiggle by this date, then you get founding member access to Squiggle DAO. And I was like, what are these Squiggle things? And it was like <laughs> 0.5 ETH or something, 0.3 ETH floor at that point. And I was like, what is this? looks like really dumb. This looks like a, a first grader. <laughs> yeah, like not impressed, but then yeah, of course, like a few months later, I was listening to some different podcasts. There's one, the Kevin Rose podcast, and he was talking with DC Investor, which is one of the most prolific NFT collectors. And both of them were raving about squiggles and they were talking about art blocks broadly, about how it's probably the most important NFT minting platform because generative art, in a way, instead of having like this URL inside of the token that's pointing to like an S3 server where the art lives, now a generative art the art actually lives in a contract on chain. And so you can reproduce it. It's independently verifiable. And so it's that's basically like crypto native art or Web3 native art. And so, yeah, it's, a lot of people believe that that's basically going to be the most durable art form or at least like that class of art. And so, yeah, they were raving about art blocks. Thought it was very interesting. And yeah, and just started talking about squiggles. And so at that point, it, the, the floor was like three or four ETH. And I was like, all right, YOLO, whatever. I'll do it. I'll, I'll get some. And yeah ended up getting a squiggle and ever since then I've just gone deeper on like what generative art means, how it works and also art blocks in general, how it's the first place that a lot of these generative artists were able to get introduced to crypto. And so many of them, they have tons of affinity for art blocks. And so, yeah, for me, the squiggle, it it really encapsulates just this idea of that on the surface, it just looks really dumb, looks meaningless, looks stupid. But then if you actually peel back the layers, it's, it's actually much more important than people realize. 
I love it. I love the the backstory of squiggles too. Um, I know at some point I need to have some of the squiggle Dow people on because that's something that I feel like we haven't had on the podcast much, but I think that would be a fun thing to talk about too. So Patrick, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Yep. So I'm on Twitter at Patrick X Rivera. And then also I write at p.mirror.xyz. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on. It was so fun to chat. Yeah, no problem. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.